Greetings, dear listener, and welcome back to Gomology. A fresh episode for you today, and it's a long one at that. I'm your host, Nick Johannesson. Before we get into the conversation, though, I'd just like to give a heartfelt thank you for some of the wonderful recent reviews. It's a feature only on Apple Podcasts, by the way. If I may give an example, one of the most diverse and interesting podcasts out there. Lots of chat about clothes and other stuff, but really meanders through people's personal journeys in life. Generally changed my clothes choices, but also my whole outlook on life. Give it a listen. You won't be disappointed. Truly, feedback like that really boosts my motivation. Thank you, Johnny Shortcut. Very appreciated. Also, thanks to those who support the podcast on Patreon. It means a lot. There's a link in the show notes in case you'd like to support, like said Johnny above. If you have a suggestion or even dream guest, do get in touch. I'll see what I can do. Uh, without more ado, let's get into it. We're off to Sussex to talk tweed. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, today we're back in the UK, uh, Sussex, I believe, uh, by way of Northern Ireland, by way of Stornoway, uh, variously. So let's get into it. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Nick. Uh, Jonathan Kelly here, owner of Sussex Tweed. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. It's really quite uh, it's really quite a thing to be on this, actually. I was uh, very delighted to be asked to be on this. Thank you very much. My pleasure entirely. I'm always after interesting new guests. So I'll put that out there. Now, Sussex Tweed. Uh, or shall we go further back in time? Because I sense there is more than one story at play here. Uh, yeah, I warn you, my story's a long one. Um, I'll give you a quick bit of Sussex Tweed and then how we got here. Sussex Tweed, I started 10 years ago, roughly 10 years ago. I was commuting to London, working as a film editor, freelance film editor. And the commute, if it was going well, is uh, you're talking door to door, both ways, four hours. You could be working a 10-hour day. You could be working a 12-hour day. And then it just, you know, so it becomes a grind. And you just think there's got to be something better than this. This is quite literally killing me and crushing my spirit. Um, also, in television, there's, you know, this this race to the bottom. And we're nearly there, I think. It's like massive de-skilling. And there's no craft or pride in so many of these jobs. And you're presented with material to cut. Um, which is some in some cases uncuttable, you know. It's it's and it's that's just thing. This is ridiculous. So I was kind of looking for a way out, um, and I think it's taken me more or less ten years to get out. Um, I think I'm now out, and um, I was just talk, chatting to my wife and says, "What the hell can I do?" And she says, "Well, you know, vintage clothes is a big thing for you." Is there anything in that that you could look at and, I don't know, whatever, you, you know, something around that as a start? That was the starting point. So I thought about it for a year every day on the train. And that was kind of how, where it was going to go. It was going to be about vintage clothes. And then so we, we look at it and you realize that, well, all the original stuff has been either bought up or worn out. It doesn't, I mean, it's hard to find. You could just go and find it once upon a time. And I'll come back to that. And um, 
So I thought, well, why don't we do sort of the reproduction type thing? And now that's really taken off, actually. I've noticed like lots of brands like Cathcart and so on. I and mean, there's loads, there's loads out there. But we, or I was going to start a brand called British Regulation Wear, um, which I've got a big love for like workwear and things like that. Cotton drills, a bit of a fetish, uh, industrial denims, that sort of thing, surge. Um, and was kind of taking a lot of inspiration from sort of like sort of railway style clothes. Um, I used to work in the railways and I've got loads of that old stuff lying about the place, like, like lovely surge firing jackets and overalls and so on and so on. I'm just thinking like, well, how could I then sort of bring those more up to date? Maybe we could have like a, a jacket with like a nice woolen lining and that, that sort of thing. Um, and I did go down that road and it just started being very complicated very quickly, very expensive very quickly, and probably a little bit more than I could really manage. So then um, my wife said it yet again. I said, well, what about um, caps? What about doing caps? Caps are, you like caps? They're nice and easy to make. You can still use tweed. Um, and that's sort of how Sussex tweed then began. It was kind of like to, to make caps because that's now a doable thing you can then you know you can source vintage tweeds you can buy tweeds you can you know ultimately make your own stuff and you can get people in this country to make it and the ethos was it all has to be sourced and made here because i just can't stand a long supply chain um ask, <laughs> ask napoleon about those um but um and of course now you can see the weaponization of supply chains look what's happening um and i just think that these these it's it's a crazy way to do business. It, yes, it may be cost effective for people, but I just I just think it's inherently wrong on many many levels, and that's how Sussex Tweed started proper. And the ethos was made here, made well with the best quality materials you could get your hands on. So doing it differently, so we would use leather sweat bands like they used to do years ago, and cotton ticking linings like they used to do because they 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 offer you. Uh, there's a there's a, a utility in the, those materials, you know they're natural, but they also they wick away sweat and they help your head breathe, um, and that's and that was the starting point for Sussex Tweed. Now to go back all the way back, um, it all started with with uh, music, alternative music, punk rock, and there's so much came out of that. So back in Northern Ireland, we were running around, uh, you know, putting on gigs, playing in bands. Um, Roughly was, when was this? Oh, this would be late, mid to late 80s. And um, there were just, we'd just be j jumping around from one band to the other. And it was a wonderfully sort of uh, DIY, you know, making your own posters, getting your own gigs and getting people together and bringing it all, you know, kind of producing it all yourselves for, you know, for zero. And it was all kind of like, you know, get the look. What's the look? And we read somewhere that that was Bono of all people. Um, <laughs> um, nice chap, by the way. Lovely guy. A great, a great bunch of lads, as we would say. Seriously, really nice guys. And um, that's another story for another day. Stories for another day. But um, he mentioned somewhere that skinny jeans in a 60s jacket was a kind of a, a cheap punk look in 70s Dublin. We thought, oh, there you go. Fucking great, let's do that. So down to Oxfam, 
you know, we'd be in Oxfam every Saturday and the stuff in there was incredible. There'd be like Montague Burton suits from the 50s and 60s, American stuff, Cleghorns, uh, still got a lovely sort of tonic suit. And then that was, you know, we'd kind of like get a lot of jeans and fuck them up with bleach and paint and whatever. And we could, you know, strap some school bags. And we'd kind of, it was really DIY. I think it was what Joe Strummer said, I mean, the most punk place on earth was Northern Ireland because really they had nothing and it was just what have we got to hand and that's what we're going to use. Um, and also the, the circumstances were a bit more trying than West London, um, shall we say. And so, yeah, we just were running around like this. And But the ladies in the shop would sell you this beautiful suit for like three quid or fiver. And we got lovely Barathea kind of uh, evening <laughs> evening dress and stuff like that. Shawl collared. Amazing. And, and stick on with a pair of jeans and away you go. And we find you can stick your fags here. You put your cider there. You put something up here. And it's like, this is really fucking handy. It's like this. And, on, and of course, all the girls were like, ooh. So then we started playing gigs in the suits because they would only sell you the suits. You couldn't just buy the jackets. We started wearing the suits to, you know, playing gigs. And people were again like, ooh. And we kind of went, ooh, this is really nice. I love it. It feels amazing. And people love it. And there's more pockets for stuff. Fucking great. And then... You know, and then we just start wearing them to the pub in the day and then just in lying around on the floor in the house in the day and it all became rather sort of loose and sort of Nick Cavey or something, you know what I mean? And it just got ridiculous. And then so the suits then kind of morphed into vintage clothing. Uh, so then you're know, getting into the, you know, industrial denim and all that sort of stuff. And there was a great shop in Larne where I grew up called Adam Leslie. You'd have loved it. It was just full, floor to ceiling with industrial denim, uh, serge police trousers, uh, workwear, cotton drill. Oh my God, it was heaven. Uh, proper braces, uh, things that hold the shirts on your arm and flat caps, um, and very old fashioned wooden floor gas lights, big, 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 big counters, rolls of brown paper and any bits with that brown paper smell. And, um, and a very eccentric man who ran it, Adam Leslie, about, Wonderful place. And if I had money, I would have bought the whole place up. Uh, gone now. God knows where the stock went. But and I dread to think what he had upstairs. I can only imagine. Um, so that so that, that became sort of more vintage then, as we would now call vintage. So sort of, you know, you know, your big turn-ups and your dark denims. And again, more of an American influence coming in there. And as I said to someone the other day so is vintage clothing a gateway drug to tweed and i think the answer is yes it is and i don't <laughs> care it's magic i like it um and i was talking to my wife the, the other um to kathy the other night saying about about tweed says, yeah what's a, you know remember i i came back with my first tweed jacket and uh she says yes i remember that well and uh, i said yeah it was the first the first tweed i bought it was brand new it was harris tweed in fact it's hanging up my door here i use it for gardening now um from the dispensary in soho and think she was like you're in your 30s what are you doing think think what you're doing and i just was like kind of i know it, it feels like you are you're kind of moving from i don't know crack to heroin or something or or, or, or getting into crystal meth or something you know what i mean something really outrageous and wrong but <laughs> <laughs> you put it on and you kind of go okay Hey, I shouldn't be doing this, but it feels amazing. I really like this. And people kind of do look at you like you're in your thirties, you're wearing tweed. What are you doing? It's a pink shirt. Fucking lunatic. You know, 
but that was it. It was in. It was hooked. Done. Um, so that kind of that's sort of the background of that. I just fell in love with tweed. It is such an amazing tactile, uh, wonderful cloth, full of utility, full just full of wonder, and it just it keeps on giving. You can do anything with it. You can. Do, it, it, it's it's renewable. It's biodegradable. It's endlessly adaptable as a as a as a raw material. You can. It's sustainable as fuck let's put it like that it really really is you i mean it just keeps keeps on growing you cut it it grows you cut it it grows you cut it ding 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 all day long and it's got to win through in the end because where we are now we're using something like less than one percent uh of cloth in the uk less than one percent is now made using wool but to me that's a scandal but it's also a massive opportunity because look at that growth potential it's enormous and it's not just we're not just talking about tweed the way we all think of tweed sort of tweedy dawns puffing on a pipe leather leather patches as they sort of you know bimble around oxford in their little open top morris minor or something it's it's that image is kind of gone yes there's still that market and yes there's all that we still speak to that but you have got wool that can be made into sportswear i mean i've had t-shirts made of wool you, you thought it was cotton it's incredible stuff. So sportswear, underwear, leisure wear, it's a very technical fabric. It can absorb an enormous amount of water, at least 30%, and still retain its thermal properties. Um, it's uh, antimicrobial. So, I mean, if you wear woolen socks, your feet don't stink, <laughs> basically. <laughs> you know, leather shoes, woolen socks, summer, winter, you never sweat. You just don't sweat. It's great stuff. I love it to bits. Um, so that's where it all kind of came from and kind of where it's heading to. So I'm going to go back to you and you ask me a question. I thought we could go back to Northern Ireland again and uh, the idea of vintage there. Because clearly, I mean, back then, 40-odd years ago, was vintage actually called vintage or was it secondhand clothing or because nowadays vintage is kind of this sort of elevated item, but at the same time, most of it is pretty much rubbish because it's from 20 years ago. But back then, I mean, it was good stuff. Yeah, no, you're quite right. I think it was, um, it would be very much a secondhand um, Oxfam clothes kind of uh, bracket. And, um, but as I said before, the quality was amazing. If you knew, you could just, you touched it and went, oh, ho, ho. Hello, in lovely pinstripes and you know, lovely English spun woolens. I mean, really amazing stuff, as I mentioned. Um, and it was mainly more formal stuff, so it would be like you, you sort of granny's dresses from the fifties. Sort of girls were kind of getting into those sometimes. Not many people. It was seen as very alternative. Um, it was more associated with the alternative sort of scene. Uh, sort of your soul boys with, with their sort of tweed coats and and. Uh, um, brown suede brogues and that sort of thing short bags and sides and all that malarkey um uh so you no know, it wasn't really vintage old-fashioned perhaps i mean i think i remember my mum saying what are you wearing that old suit for <laughs> you know and it's like well that's more a reason to wear it then isn't it so uh yeah so it wasn't really seen as vintage that hadn't i don't think that was that had probably taken off somewhere like london but you know northern ireland several several removes behind in many respects and um it really is on the edge of the world uh, compared to london 
Um, so yeah, another thing was when you stood out like that, you were you were a moving target. <laughs> you could almost get killed for wearing a trailway or something like. The fuck you wearing that for? Fucking weirdo. You know what I mean? It was, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you wearing that for? You know that kind of thing. You get challenged in the streets. Why are you dressed the way you're dressed? And I was like, you look fucking normal. You can't fuck off. You know, it was all a bit. <laughs> so you had to, you know, you had a certain amount of balls to wear stuff in Northern Ireland, because people would get terribly upset if you weren't wearing a tracksuit or a football shirt or something, you know. Um, and we were very much anti all that old nonsense. So uh, we were just like, well, fuck you, where we want. It's a free country, allegedly. But um, so no, it wasn't vintage as such. It was just old stuff. I mean, again, another another sort of if you look at the undertones. Um, in the seventies, I mean, it is it's the classic DMs, jeans, and like just any you know they even sang songs about it. Male model, you know, clothes that must belong to another man. <laughs> and I was like, yep, been there, done that, loads. But I still have all that stuff. And again, that's another sort of side point is that it's so well made. The cloth is such great quality, and the construction, you know, it it, it lasts. It lasts stuff. Good stuff lasts. And that feeds into that whole cost per wear thing that we're really into, which is like, yes, you know, we were selling hats. Come back to that. We're stopping that. I've stopped that really. Um, and they, they weren't cheap, but they were bloody good. And they were repairable. And we've repaired hats for people because we keep all the swatches. We said, one guy put his on a candle in the pub and burnt it. That's first outing. Send it back. Boom. Got it invisibly repaired. He bought about 10 more hats. Um, again, that's customer service. Another thing we like to talk about later on. But it's just the whole notion, do things well and you can see the results. You know, spend the time on the details. Look after people, look after the product, look after how you make it. And, you know, it will repay you many, 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 many times over. So that was the one thing that struck me about all this secondhand stuff. It's still, I still have it. It's still going. And I know people who go out and they, they buy, oh, I need, I need a thing, I need a thing. And they'll go out to Primark and buy the thing. And then it's like, oh, for, yeah, ugh, buttons, buttons off, sleeves come loose. You know, it's like instant just disintegration, yeah. and which is, again, that, that cost per wear. It might only be, you know, a few quid, but you only wear it once. You know, if you wear something that's well made, you wear it forever. And you think, well, what's the cost per wear? It's practically, you know, zero isn't it over like, over a lifetime these things i've got coats that will last me a lifetime and someone you know people said how much are you spend that x amount but it's going to last forever it's just going to last forever so i don't need to buy another one because this will last forever and they're going to go hmm bastards right but you know it's some people don't can't spend that money won't spend that money but there's got to so again there's got to be a way and this slightly later on in the conversation talking about the future of UK textiles. I'm hoping that there's going to be enough people producing again in the UK so that costs do come down and people can afford to get decent quality back into their lives. Um, but we're starting to, get to cover too many topics at once here. But hopefully that answers your question about vintage. No, it was very much a statement and it was very much seen as old fashioned. And it was only later on when you know you got, the London, people who've been to London had seen places like, I suppose, what, Flip, I think it was, uh, and Covent Garden, places like that. Yeah. Flip. Uh, and they were starting to, it was all the 501 thing that came in. That would be the probably the Nick Cayman advert. I mean, before that, 501s were used by skinheads, really, weren't they? That was a big sort of skinhead gene. Uh, 
uh maybe a few mods and stuff it wasn't like you know it was mass it was just kind of there it was wasn't massively iconic and they probably were quite cheap um but once that the 501 sort of revolution came in um and, and my sister lived in london at the time she came back and said oh yeah they've got to have this sort of like red little line somewhere on them otherwise they're not they're not the right ones and i was like what the fuck are you talking about uh red line salvage of course but um which is very much my thing these days so um but yeah it wasn't it wasn't seen as vintage until that happened then the shops started coming up in belfast selling lots of vintage stuff and then then it was then by the late 80s early 90s then it was a thing prior to that it was just secondhand clothes just to stick with the punk thing for a moment um it was interesting that your local version of punk back then was very true to the diy ethos of just doing stuff yourself and you were also getting that reaction from others <laughs> which the yeah. punks were sort of <laughs> wanting yeah. to get but at the same time the sort of inventor of punk had opened his own little shop Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood where they were selling the, the punk fashion which was kind of a mirror world punk thing where you just bought the stuff yeah I mean we I mean there were how to describe those um, that that strain it's, it's kind of like what we all think of as a, as a traditional punk rocker you know the tartan trues and uh you know, bondage trousers the biker jacket and stuff and and then we did i mean we did find tartan trues in uh like old army ones in in these shops and i think when we could afford a leather jacket a leather jacket was then added to the to the repertoire but um yeah it's um i'm sure if we had the money we we would have been dressing like that i would imagine but we just just didn't, so we just had to go our own way, um, and it all seemed very far away and very exotic and very you know esoteric and slightly fantastical to us over in County Antrim in the middle of nowhere, you know. I can relate uh, totally to that. Growing <laughs> up in the extreme north of Norway, <laughs> right? You'd see yeah. pictures in magazines and oh, <laughs> mm. oh, wish I could have that. Well, you can't. Maybe next right. year. The year after, no, but when I, when I, when I grew up, <laughs> but uh, that again, that DIY thing. Um, I did a placement, um, uh, when I was at university, uh, studying film, uh, with some ex gang members from Dundee and these old squats in, in uh, Stockwell, and they were just, I just did it, just did it, you know. And they had these edit suites that they basically found on skips. When they were doing up, they were chippies. They moved down to London and they were doing up these um, uh, facilities houses, and they were just throwing out um, uh, umatic players and Sony edit controllers and you name it. And they were just getting this stuff, pulling out a skeptical. What do we do with this? What can we do with this? And they sort of figured it out, talked to some people, and they just built this massive edit suite down in Stockwell. And they were ended up doing loads of videos for bands. I don't know, like Silverfish, Jesus Lizard, and you know, really, you know, bands I was into in the nineties. And but this is about nineteen ninety four. And I just looked at that. I thought, fucking hell, they've actually just done this out of nothing. And that's really stuck with me. It really inspired me. You can just do it. I think those opportunities are probably less and less as we've gone on. But certainly back then, there was that kind of you can just blag stuff. Probably next stuff. Let's face it. Um, and you know, pump folk for information how do we use this uh and that's where i learned how to edit and i just thought you know i made videos for my own band and stuff when it's on my placement and really really got into that but that that sort of 
seeing it in, in action, you know, inspires me. Transferring up to now, I mean, here I am surrounded by lumps of iron and wood and cranks and uh, cogs and God knows what else. And it's like, well, I'm just going to do this. I can do this. Of course you can do it. Um, this smoothly brings us into your latest venture. In, into Yeah, into the restoration of these uh, Hattersley looms. I've already done one loom, so that's which you, you can see behind me. This is the uh, wooden-framed Donegal blanket loom, and that was in bits. And it took a lot of looking at videos of other people and seeing what they did and where what 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 went where uh, to kind of figure that one out. They had to get bolts made and stuff like that. But you can just there's always a way. There's always a way to do something. Always. So the latest venture. You, yes, well, the latest a, venture. A great yearning for some old stuff. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I my background is very much in old stuff. I mean, I started. Um, really boring this uh restoring helping helping out restore steam engines when i was 15 uh in whitehead northern ireland and you know the first as a 15 year old the first three jobs i was given was uh dismantle a diesel engine take all the covers off here's some spanners off you go um second job was uh building a brick arch in the still warm firebox of a steam engine that had just come out of traffic and the third job was hot rivet hot riveting the horn guides of an axle box age 15. So that's a lot of responsibility to hand to a 15 year old who's just keen. But it's great training for now because I know my, know my way around a spanner. I like a spanner. Um, I also did a bit of time on the railways briefly. I had a great old guy there, Tommy, Tommy Barber. And what, you know, he's taught me all the dodges, how to solve all these problems, how to dismantle stuff. No matter the problem, there's a way around it. And, um, how to repurpose tools for other, for other uses and stuff like that. And it's been absolutely invaluable taking these apart uh, up in Stornoway. There was a couple of recalcitrant sort of nuts and bolts, and I was like, mm, ah, spirit of Tommy Barber in the room. And off they came uh, without too much drama. Um, they actually came down very well. They were, they were a dream. Um, and the best way to get to know any equipment is to clean it, I always say. So take it apart. You kind of see the five the five stages, uh, five gates of hell you have to go through <laughs> to take them down. But actually, you think about it, you don't need to have any training, any knowledge, really. The people that that were using any loom, they weren't you know, they weren't trained. They hadn't studied. They hadn't you know it was a crude a passed on knowledge, crude knowledge, learning on the job sort of thing. Um, and you think well. Obviously, if, if someone who's a crofter or someone in Donegal, you know, they can do it. Well, so can I, you know, so can we. We cannot, we, you know, it's, it's, it can't be that difficult. It's tricky. Once, you know, it's, weaving's tricky. You've got to be, it's a lot to learn. You know, there's a lot to learn. Um, I never thought I'd e even do it again. That's my, my, Kathy said, oh, <laughs> why don't you, <laughs> why don't you start weaving? And I just laughed at her like, what? Here we are. Um, I, I do sense a sort of leap here from making hats yeah. to finding yourself in a shed in Stornoway dismantling Hattersley looms. Yeah. But the sub-question, why yeah. weren't these Hattersley looms weaving Harris Tweed, given that they were on the Hebrides? Yeah, well, what's there's been a shift. Sorry, the bin lorry's coming past. I don't know if you can hear that. It's marvellous, isn't it? Um, the 
Harris Street Authority, um, HHT, is it association? I don't know. But anyway, they've, uh, they've come across to these double width um, Griffiths bonus looms, which are kind of like rapier looms. Um, so Harris, the Harris Street looms are single width. Um, and I th- now, so there's quite a lot of these things, I think, just lying around now, not really... Um, the knots not weaving for Harris Tweed. I don't think they accept single width anymore. Uh, oh. But there's lots of independent weavers up there who don't work for Harris Tweed who are selling stuff. And obviously, then I think there's been a sort of an outflow of these things into you know across the world now, out out from the islands, uh, for people who I think don't have those uh, restrictions placed upon them. Some tailors pr- would prefer double width. Some are happy to work with single. Um, I guess we'll find out. and um, But we're not just going to be weaving tweed on these. We want to weave denim on these as well. Like shitloads of single-width salvage denim. That's definitely going to happen. Um, not sure how, but it's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, it's um, that's the reason why there's quite a lot of these, I think, coming up. And I think there's probably more of them out there than maybe people realise. I mean, we met loads of people up there. I was like, oh, my mum had one, and my uncle had this, and did a little bit. Oh, we've got parts in the shed, and then that, you know. At some point, there were lots and lots of people weaving. Yeah, it was really good. It was a good income for a lot of people. Um, Because, you know, crofts don't, you know, are are pretty, um, they're not massive, and it's kind of part-time. I mean, they wouldn't, certainly now, wouldn't really support you. Um, So, yeah, they were... um, so here we are, and we have so we've got two in here. We've got a pern winder as well. It still works, actually. We had it running up there. We the, the motor still runs, but I'm just taking everything to pieces and giving it the um, the paraffin treatment, which is um, paraffin's a wonderful thing. It will clean off anything. So if you are restoring a loom, buy lots of paraffin and a bucket and a brush, and soak it and slap it on because it just cuts through all the old grime and ground in stuff. And takes it off beautifully and it will preserve the original finish which we are going to keep because they're still i'm not going to sandblast them and paint them or anything like that i'm just going to keep them as is i'm a great believer in sort of conservation and a lovely pattern on them you can still see the original paint and all the original markings all the original numbers um it's just wonderful tough uh really inventive simple and you know engineering it's a bit like a mini engine you know it's like uh how they've managed to take a loom and just kind of like squash it all in it's like you know, the mini engine had the um the gearboxes in the sump um so they kind of saved a lot of space they're very space saving looms i think looking at them and there's a lot of carryover but you know between say something you know like engines and, and the motion of even a steam engine or the internals of a car with cranks and corn rods and such like and journals um, bearings in there and um and lots of you know ball races and things like that. that's great i love it it's just can't keep me away from these at the minute um we will i have no idea if i'm answering your question by the way uh <laughs> you kind of went skipping around and sort of uh yeah back and forth a bit but uh, i think we're still at the point where somehow you got the idea that you wanted looms um that was it and then you did a gofundme well, yeah, I mean, it's, it goes back further. I mean, this 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 all happened very quickly. If we just stay on these ones, I mean, literally, I think it was, uh, I was looking at Instagram. I think it was um, someone had posted on Woven in the Bone a link to 
a house for sale, croft for sale in um, uh, Stornoway. And she said, oh, look, 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 there's some looms. And I think it was at Sa- uh, Sam Goats. Yep, Sam Goats. Yep. I think she possibly said. I think she's, yes, very interesting. Great weaver. Amazing. Um, also Hattersley Loom user. And um, I can't remember, but I think she said, Christ, I've got enough of those or something, <laughs> probably. And so I spoke to my friend, uh, Ali, and she said, you want to move on that really quickly? And I says, no, seriously, they'll just go. And I went, okay. She said, well, just start a, start a crowdfunder thing and, and, you know, but get on the phone now because it's out there and these things just, they go. So I thought, oh my God, here we go. Right, so I rang up the estate agent and says, I notice you've got these looms, blah, blah, blah. We're interested, blah, blah, blah. Can you tell the vendor that we are interested? So I got a call from this uh, chap, lovely, lovely guy. Um, we're chatting away. And, um, you know, and it's a funny thing when you, when you talk to people, you've got a, in sort of Ireland or Scotland, you kind of have to come a wee bit sideways at it. You know, <laughs> you can't just come in going, you have looms. I want them. Here's some money. Cause they'll just go, you'll just hear the dial tone then, you know what I mean? They'll just tell you the, where to get off. So we just sort of circled around each other a wee bit. And I mentioned that, you know, my family not being the merchant Navy. So I was in the merchant Navy. I was in the merchant name. So you were not. Who, who were you with? Bloody, bloody, bloody. And maybe we went on down that road. And then we did business after that. You know what I mean? And then it was all right to do business. It was, you know, that's how, sort of how it goes. And um, and then so we agreed a price uh, because they were pretty. They had, it turns out they haven't been used in about 28 years. Yeah. We found some more history out about them. I'll come back to that maybe later. And um, it, so it was this chap's. Uh, brother-in-law who who had them uh i think he was uh john murdo mckeever is his name and he received them in 19 okay we're doing this now he received these limbs in 1954 but i don't think they're, they weren't they weren't they're mark one still so we think they're maybe second hand because by then i think they were green um the hattersley mark twos i think were right by then i'm no expert in this by the way so please anyone feel free to correct me i mean they could be from the 20s we just we just don't really know but anyway we um so we agreed a price come off the phone and just sort of went what do i do now so right crowdfunders uh, go fund me and if you are we are raising still raising money now for, for to continue the restoration this is probably a good time to put a plug in it's um go fund me help Sussex Tweed Rescue Hattersley Looms. Plus, you'll find the links on our social media, uh, Instagram and Facebook. Um, and if you do give, thank you very much in advance because without people giving, this would not have happened at all. Um, and I'm forever, forever grateful for that. Um, so we went on GoFundMe, clickety, clickety, clack, 20 minutes later, there you go, bang. And then money started coming in. Um, and very, very, within a couple of weeks, I think we'd raised the purchase price and, you know, and then by the time we needed to get up there, we had enough to, to fund our, you know, our transport, our diesel, our accommodation, food, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a fucking odyssey, Nick. Okay. <laughs> it Not was <laughs> a fucking odyssey. 
Oh my god. Anyway, they're back, but getting them back was how much do you want to know about this? It's really quite a lot, mental. yes. <laughs> Let's look for stuff like this. Uh so we find out the house had been sold. Lovely guy called Ushtin's bought it, and he uh, and this is again jumping around here. Um he's taken the croft on and he's gonna raise sheep there and he says, Would you be interested in any fleeces? Because then you can only put it through the loom as your first warp. I thought, man, that's a great idea. What a lovely, lovely yeah. idea. And there's still some of the, the last warp on there. And I've just sent a wee bit up to the man up in Stornoway for his wife. Um, uh, the cleanest bit. But it's a lovely sort of petrol blue herringbone. It's lovely. So wouldn't that be nice to kind of recreate that with the, you know, uh, wool from the same craft that the loom came from? That would be a lovely bit of continuity. So... It, so anyway, it was a much uh, kickbollock scramble, really, uh, when we found out that we kind of had to get up. My friend Ali came with me. She's got a Land Rover and a trailer. And um, what she doesn't know about weaving and looms isn't worth knowing, to be quite honest. And um, so we, uh, she's she met me over in Tiverton because she's based in the West Country. And I so I had to get, I get up to London. I get up to London, get an early train to Tiverton, meet her, drive all the way to Fort William, uh, which seemed to go without incident until just outside Glasgow, we got flashed with this car and this guy pulled out and goes, your trailer's smoking like fuck. I was like, <laughs> okay, thanks. Okay, shit. So we better find out what that is. And the handbrake had, had come on because it was empty. It was bouncing around on the motorway. So the handbrake had somehow gone, bling, had come up. Hopefully not too fucking far in advance of that. But yeah, the back axle was getting a wee bit, a wee bit smoggy. So we sorted that out and we managed to, then we got up to, we got up in good time. We're up there about, you know, nine o'clock in the evening. We thought it would be midnight. And we thought, great, let's go to the pub. Well, I guess we'll get fish and chips. Everything is shut. <laughs> it's shut. It's Scotland. It's the winter. There's nothing open. Nope, nothing. Okay. Can we open the bar? No. Okay. So, uh, anyway, Betty buys up, massive breakfast, and then we got across the Isle of Skye, all going fabulously well, got to Uig to, to get the ferry, and we had somewhere to stay that night in, uh, down in, oh God, down in um, Harris, right, so right down the bottom. It's quite a big, you know, you know some of the islands are tiny, Harris and Lewis are, are um, pretty big. Oh yeah, and it's snowing it's snowing, and I mean snowing. <laughs> and may I just say, it's snowing like fuck, and it's cold as fuck as well. I mean, it's like you take your gloves off, it's like, shit. You know, it's that cold. It's really not good. Um, so it's very trying conditions. Thank God we've got a Land Rover. Uh, so anyway, we go and stay with uh, Granny Annie uh, down in the bottom. And next day we get up, and it snowed even more overnight. We're like, oh, my God, pitch black. And off we toodle. And there's a there's a pass, is it Clisham or something pass? And we had to get across this. And we thought we may not actually get over here. But actually, it, it was the clearest road of the lot. So we got over and, when, you know, there was lots of sort of fraught moments of, whoa, she's having a wee dance. You know what I mean? And you just sort of feel a kind of, whoa, hey, sonsing around the road a wee bit. You think, okay, fuck. Uh, we got there. We got there. And... It's bitterly cold. There is at least, you know, and the guy came up to meet us, let us in, and then, of course, we meet the looms, and I was like, oh, my God, they're actually not that bad. You know what I mean? They're pretty good. They're pretty good. One has obviously been used as a, a donor loom, uh, so there's a couple of bits missing, um, but the, the main one, 
Donald of the twins is far more complete and in slightly better condition. Um, so yeah, and then we just thought, right, here we go. So we then we had to um, we start we just started in straight away, and of course never. I mean, I've seen one in the flesh, as it were, before, but I've never really got down and dirty with one. So thankfully, Ali knows these things because there's five processes. This is what you do. Dun 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 dun. So she kind of led that, and I just sort of went spanner here, yes, spanner there, yes, do this, do that, yes, yes, boss. And then so down they came, they came down pretty well, and then um. We worked till about eight o'clock that night. We're absolutely filthy, um, covered in shite from rolling around the floor and grease and oil. And it just got to the point where we're like, that'll do. We'll load it all tomorrow morning. Perfect. Off we go. And um, that was all fine. And that's so far, so good, right? The next day, snow, more snow, more snow, really bit biting cold. 30 mile an hour plus winds, probably sideways snow, not the most sort of um, morale boosting kind of weather, shall we say. Anyway, we managed to back up. We left the trailer there overnight. We just thought in our wisdom that we would move it forward because where we, it's a bit boggy and PT and stuff. We thought if we put more stuff on here now, it's just going to get stuck. So let's draw forward. And then it, the catalog of errors starts. So we moved the Land Rover forward, and just as we do so, very, rather obligingly, a rather large boulder decides to, it would rather be under the trailer than where it was. I just saw this thing slide gracefully out, right underneath the trailer, right in front of the wheels, stop. And much swearing ensued. You get out, and then you walk around the Land Rover out of the lee of the wind, and then you get punched in the face by this blizzard, and it's like, oh, no please just you know you know you just go it's all going so well no it's not no it's not no we're we're, we're all going to combine and conspire the stones and the wind and the weather we're all gonna we're gonna get you boy what do you see so we kind of went oh man that was a bad moment and just as we're sort of standing there a guy came past on his quad ken mccauley thank you ken mccauley uh, the farmer. I didn't say, are you the farmer? Much as I would like to, but I didn't say that. Um, some people will know what I'm referring to. <laughs> and of course he was the farmer. So he and a ratchet strap were put to work and we moved some stuff. And we, so we got the thing out. Yeah, eventually the stone came out. In the meantime, uh, we texted Ushton, the, far, the other guy, to say, can you help us, please? Uh, and he had d- dispatched someone who then arrived on a on a rather fetching Zetter tractor, a guy called Fraser. And we thought, well, you going to give a ratchet straps? Aye. Fucking great. So he whizzed through the ratchet straps like a demon. So some good things are happening at this point. This is okay. But time has been lost and there's a ferry to get. Anyway, we just about made the ferry. And then the weather gets worse. So we're sitting on this ferry and it's kind of going up and it's going down and it's going up and it's going down. And, you know, that's all right. I've got my sea legs from a seafaring family, but the other 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 people weren't so happy. Um, so I just went to sleep. But then we arrived in Olapool and the weather was worse again. So you can't actually just about see the bow of the ship. We're like, oh, my God, this is going to have to. Now we have to drive to Stirling in the dark in a fucking blizzard. So we come off the ferry. There's a foot of snow at the side of the road. I thought, oh, holy fuck. There's TV crews out filming it. 
which we probably we drove past we sort of waved so we might be on some bbc scotland broadcast hi um pulled it at the garage and said uh oh, what's the crack with the road he says i well you know you might get there <laughs> so i think some cars are getting through i think some things got through that, that's filling me with confidence any snow plows out uh, it might be right okay Back in the Land Rover, away we go. Snowplows are coming thick and fast, believe it or not. As soon as they go past, the road's covered. In five minutes, it's back to where it was. It's like, fuck. It was, that was nerve-wracking. That was really, really nerve-wracking. And that was the drive of my life, getting us out through that. Um, 20 miles an hour, if that. I mean, it was bad, bad conditions. Um probably the weight of the looms about three tons of these bloody things probably just kept us on the road actually but as i said before when you go around bends you just have the kind of freewheeler and don't touch the brakes or you'll just go sideways so you're kind of going on a wing and a prayer around these corners like come on come on come on and you can just feel the slightest wee wiggle and you think oh my god please no please no please no um Anyway, as soon as we got sort of out of the mountains, then it was all clear. We finally got to Stirling. We're home. We're dry. It's great. It's fantastic. Brilliant. Wrong. We uh, we, we decided to have, a, to have a premature celebration. We broke out the gin, and we had a nice bit of gin there. All feeling very good. Next morning, minus nine. The car is literally frozen to the ground. I mean, there's like half an inch thick ice on the bonnet. And the ratchet straps are like steel. Well, that's okay. So we thought, and it just it just took forever to warm up. And we thought, right, we need lard and coffee. So we went to the garage. And then I went in to get coffee, came back out and went, why is that tire not on the rim of the trailer? Fuck off. <laughs> just fuck off life. You know, I was like, no. Ah, so now we've got to find a, somewhere to get a trailer tire in an odd size in Sterling. Oh, man. But we did, thankfully. They were great. Um, but just you're just living on your nerves at this point. You just quite can't be easy. We just need to get home. It's a 780-mile trip each way. I just want to be home. Um and then the wipers froze and they didn't work. And then we couldn't see where we were going because all the. Uh, it was. Anyway. Thank you, AA. And then it got better. Then we were okay. Then we were underway. And then it actually started to come good. But it wasn't easy. It was very trying. But we just about came through it. And we arrived in Sussex about 10 o'clock on a very frosty night. And then anyone who was up, mobile, and sentient was roped in to carry stuff into the shed. And we got it all in. And then Ali drove to fucking Cornwall. Hardcore. Hardcore. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, and immediately, I mean, that's probably the sanitized version of it all. There could be lots more swearing if, if you want, maybe if we see, ever see you sometime. But um, yeah, uh, we got we, we did it. Somehow we did it. And um, there you go. And I really don't, still don't really know how we managed all that because I think that would have beaten a lot. Most mere mortals would just have gone, fuck this. I'm giving up. This is too, it's too hard, too difficult can't do this but when you want something bad enough i think you just put the head down and get on with it you know um and here they are so they're all in they're coming apart really nice they're cleaning up beautifully and to be honest with you one is could go back together um really any day now but we're just going to park that and then take the second one into the paraffin bay 
get him cleaned up, and then then they can start going back up. And once that process is uh, completed, then we know what we need because there are bits and pieces um, missing. I think there's like a revolving shuttle box needs to be sourced and stuff, but we reckon we can get this stuff. But it's going to cost a little bit of money. So yes, yet again, can I appeal to anyone listening? If you, anything you can give helps. Um, what we've been spending money on since we got back are things like uh, paraffin, lots of paraffin, uh, rust remover, things like that, to dip all the little sort of tiny little weird things into to get all the rust off them, and it's all coming up beautifully. So we're very confident about getting these working very in the next few weeks and months, I would say, depending on parts availability. Yet again, I probably haven't answered your question, Nick, have I? I can't even remember what the question was. It was about half an hour ago, I think. <laughs> but we can uh, we can sort of move on to, uh, I mean, once you've got them together again, uh, got them set up, tuned, you're going to be making tweed. Is this for more hats, for own projects? What's the what's the plan? The plan really is, okay, so the, the, the big grand plan is to establish a scalable, sustainable micro mill fleece to fabric using local supply chains take it from local so using wool from local flocks in sussex preferably just in sussex um to give farmers a fair price for their fleeces we then take them in uh, process them clean them uh, card them spin them weave them and then out the back door comes finished cloth um a mixture of uh, stock supported and um commission-based weaving for the fashion industry you're going to need some more gear, though, for that, aren't you? We do know someone who's who's got stuff. Uh, yeah, so it's basically a case of that's in storage. We don't own it. They are prepared to uh, feed it in, but it will need restoration and renovation. Um, we will need premises then to put that in. But that's maybe slightly getting ahead of ourselves this is going to take a little while to do there's no point you, you can't rush into this it's going to need proper investment so um, we are <laughs> so late summer yeah next week uh we're, well we're already in sort of an investment circles as it were um dipping our dipping our toe into that um working with um um some sort of um I'm not going to say because we're waiting to hear the outcome of this. So, um, but there's um, you know certain bodies who, who sort of kind of guide you through the process. Um, hopefully, that would be a positive outcome. I don't know yet. Um, it's probably a lot of competition to get onto these these sort of um, into into these cohorts, as it were. Um, but there's many avenues you, you you can go down to get this this kind of stuff. Um, and we now need to start looking at that really quite seriously, I would say. I mean, there's obviously, I mean, there must be, there will be various grants. I mean, DEFRA probably have stuff and whatever. We just need to identify sources of potential funding um, from a number of range of, like, if it's an angel investors or whatever. Um, uh, but the plan is to have a pretty well laid out um facility that, that we can do this in a very you know not completely carbon free it's that's difficult but very low carbon very clean very sustainable um and sort of very circular um kind of um supply chain type stuff local very local supply chains and then scalable up so it can be expanded 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 um and we think there 
needs to be this across the UK. There needs to be um, a concerted kind of effort by all parties, including governments, um, all the agencies, to kind of make this kind of happen. Make, not kind of, to make this happen. Um, there are enough people out there who are trying to do this. There are enough people out there who are, you know, probably gagging for investment. I mean, let's get it out, out to people. Um, because you've seen the resurgence of cotton in Manchester. So that it shows it can be done. And I think to go back to what I said earlier about long supply chains, quality, the conditions that things are produced under, people want quality. They want stuff that is made here. Um, there's a hankering for that. There's a, a yearning for that. We do hark back to that again, like these lovely fabrics that we all, you know, had in these vintage clothes and it's, we've lost so so much of it um and i think that the wheel is turning um how we do things because as i said the supply chain has been weaponized now so you've got stuff that's been produced abroad has to come through you know run run the gauntlet as it were it makes it potentially unsustainable for some businesses i think to, to work like that i personally think it's mental to do that business that way when you can do it here you know you wouldn't make it you know if you can do it all here you wouldn't make a cup of tea by going driving up to birmingham for your tea bags and then over to lincoln to boil the kettle and then so on and so forth back to sussex for the milk you know you'd say you were completely bonkers but that's kind of what we do globally i mean yes i know it's all about and that's the money. it's cheaper to have your tea from birmingham isn't it yeah. saving lots of money well but why? How? That's true. I mean, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's got to win through in the end, I think, ultimately. But there has to be massive support. Um, and you've got to re-educate uh, the consumer, really, that, you know, wearing oil on your skin that, you know, for two or three wears and then throwing it away it ends up in landfill and wherever around the world. Um, it's just horrendous. It's horrendous. This stuff never breaks down. I mean, it's a polyester just forever forever kind of material um and with you know and and fossil fuels will end not completely but they will pretty much end as a dominant sort of um energy source um and raw material source they just will uh people are going to be looking to alternatives and we are offering that alternative um and there's lots of other people out in the uk who are you know again we all want to do this and there we need to have so so much in place uh we need to have a strategy for start we don't have an industrial strategy here which to me is crazy um and it has to include textiles um and the fashion industry has to be in there i mean the fashion industry brings in an awful awful lot of money to the uk and i think it's more or less discounted in government circles it's uh, again a bit like um film and tv that's you know it's it brings in so much but it's sort of derided i think it's just not really in people's view for some reason i don't know why it just isn't really taken as you know taken seriously but is it, um, it isn't serious business is it i mean fashion is just by its very nature throw away flimsy for girls kind of thing i mean it's yeah, fine it really it? counts yeah. isn't it <laughs> Yeah, let's face it. Oh, really, it's all just a lot of fucking nonsense. Um, but I think, I mean, there's certain areas when you compare it to what would be taken seriously in maybe in the manufacturing world. I mean, things like fashion actually brings in you know an order of magnitude more um, to this country than say I don't know whatever it is steel making or something like that. I can't remember. There was a direct comparison. I can't remember it. Um, 
and it's the same with um, uh, media as well. It brings in a huge amount of money, um, but it's not really factored in to anything, any sort of governmental thinking, unfortunately. And it's also, there's more than just the sort of the fiscal take you get from this or whatever like that, you know, the tax revenues you're going to get from this. And But you've, you've got, you know, that sort of soft power projection around the world we're doing things well we're doing things differently it's as quality you can guarantee this it's made in england there's still a lot there's a lot behind that sort of brand made in england um for good or for ill or you know whether it's deserved or whether it's not people do believe in that they definitely definitely do not only here but abroad i mean when we were selling the hats around the world um into europe people really hanker after that They, they associate that with something done well um and also, you're, you're demonstrating to the world this is the way to go. This is what we have to do. Um, come with us. Um, and I think, and again, if you just want to put it down to base terms, there's fucking shitloads of money to be made here, folks. You know, it's like it's a massive. There's a huge. It's wide open for growth, as well. How I see it, it's absolutely wide open for gro- growth. And if we can all get this right, then you know you could have a very, a very, um, I could have a flourishing UK textile sector. It's not. Moribund is not dead, but it's. I mean, I think last year woven textiles accounted for something. What did they bring in? Something uh, they that was worth 68 million, 66 million. Well, we should be talking billions, I think, not millions. You know what I mean? I think, as I said earlier, that when you look at the fact we're only using, you know. One percent, less than one percent of wool, wool, woolen cloth for anything, or you know, using wool to make anything in this country, and you've got farmers who I know are burying their fleeces, burning their fleeces again. Something like, I think last year, someone told me they were getting thirty p a fleece, yeah. costs them over two quid to um to shear the damn thing. That's sorry, that's mental. Yeah. So that's not okay. I'd like to loop back to something you said earlier, because. You're planning now, at least initially, to be making tweed. And you mentioned about 45 minutes ago, I think, as a 38-year-old, you bought your first tweed jacket and ran into some problems with people around you and the perception of tweed. Is there something we need to do with that perception for your dream of weaving tweed to really take off? Well, there. I think generally, I think it's. I think it's okay to be a tweed wearer now. <laughs> I think it's all right. Has it changed? Um, I think people. I think it has changed a bit. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think a lot of. I mean, like uh, Vivian Westwood, God rest her. She she was a big tweed fan, wasn't she? I mean, things when it goes when it's repurposed and taken into the mainstream, then people see it in a different light and they understand it maybe a bit more. So like you get, there's been an explosion of sort of tweed accessories, you know, Harris tweed uh, computer bags and stuff like that. And people then realize that it's durable, it's tough, it's waterproof and actually quite useful and it looks beautiful. And it's how, as I said, it's that perception of the Tweedy Dawn, I think is what a lot of people think is, is what tweed is. But, um, I've got a great guy working for us now, Joseph, who is a graduate um, from the University of Brighton and um, with a very well-deserved first, I might add. And his designs for uh, for tweeds are just out of this world. And I've just said to him, uh, 
because would that be all right kind of thing says man do what you want <laughs> you know you can do what you want and just you just design and go i'll i have a few wee ideas here and there um and it can be taken you can take it more or less anywhere any direction so you can we, we do like the traditional stuff and we will always have a wee go at that i think but we're very much got an eye on being slightly different um I mean, usually anything I've woven and used before, I'll always have a blue warp, no matter what's going across it. Um, so you can sort of see that little blue sheen underneath. So you go, oh, it's a Sussex tweed. That's sort of, you know, a signature sort of look. I mean, we are really branching into this to be, you know, to be to be clear and honest here. I mean, I've been weaving here and using stuff for hats. I mean, that's really as, as far as it has gone. It was really just for internal consumption, as it were. Now we are seeking to go out um, when we've got ourselves ready and feel ready and are happy to do so, and then go out and and chase after the uh, the trade. We're already getting lots of lots of. Um, inquiries can i have some can i have some can i have some? you know they're going just just just, just shh, wait all good things come to those who wait but once we're good and ready then i think it's time to really i mean it'll have to happen this year because we it needs to start this needs to start paying for itself in, in a, at a higher level um you know because you can't just exist on uh, you know sort of ideals but um yeah, so we want to we want to go slightly different. So yes, the perception of it as very much that one thing you mentioned is is there. I think it has lessened. I think things like Instagram, uh, social media has broadened the appeal because you see lots on lots of sort of diverse characters wearing tweed, um, and the sort of younger generation have kind of taken it and run with it a little bit, and they're, so they're kind of wearing it differently. So they are combining maybe a very traditional jacket or a coat with some pretty outrageous stuff. Um, is it pity that thing in, in Italy? Yeah. People are really, go, really go wild with it. Um, and I guess things like tweed run and thing, you know, it's become sort of it's become a kind of a fun thing, um, and that's very visible. People see that, and they kind of some people have obviously have never worn tweed. See all these people riding past uh, on bicycles and think, oh, quite like that. I could go a bit of that, you know. I think it's I think it's kind of accepted. I think it was was in danger almost of dying out, wasn't it? I mean, there was a while. I think certainly, you yeah. know, with the Harris Tweed thing, it was all on a knife age. I think a few years ago. I think it's safe. I think it's been saved, as it were. Um, and again, it's all these little people like us who are kind of trying to get it going that are probably helping. Certainly in England, it's not. Um, you've got your bigger mills who survived you know, your moons and your foxes and so on who have been doing it forever. And, you know, but there were so, so, so many other companies who were doing it, who have gone. But now I think people like us are trying to get in and fill that void a little bit. And if we can kind of, there's room for loads of people is what I'm saying. I think there's room for, for massive growth here. And I'm sorry, I'm just rambling now, aren't I? But, I, but it's going to bring in the people, the, the Josephs of, the, of this world who are coming out of universities who then kind of come out at the end of this conveyor, conveyor belt and go, oh, there's no one doing this. So there needs to be people doing it and the, these people need to be supported. There needs to be funding and training and opportunities uh, provided for them uh, through people like us to, to bring in uh, the young people who are going to basically keep this going and, and be the lifeblood of this industry in the future. I guess there are quite a few around the place, but not many you really hear about. 
And when you mentioned the sort of resurgence of tweed and how it might be used by young people, I don't think that happens really enough. There's still the Colonel Blimp in the library. Well, we shall, we, shall, we, shall have to, we shall have to work on that. We shall have to change yeah, that. I mean, we shall have to... Dashing tweeds are doing a good job there, taking things sort of out there, left field. Um, mm. But as you mentioned, I mean, a lot of Harris tweed is used for trinkets and bits and pieces. What I'd like to see is more designers doing really modern, say, streetwear, cool stuff, updated stuff using tweed and using proper tweed because you've got brands that are using kind of tweed but it's a polymixed tweed and I, so yeah. to that i think well why do you even bother well i mean looking forward that's as i said earlier i mean high-end fashion you know commission based even for high-end fashion is i think what is exactly where it's at because i've you know you look at a lot of designers i mean stella mccartney is obviously she's a sussex girl uh, if you want to get in touch, Stella, please do. Uh, it would be great um, to work with someone like that because they're very much about sustainability and like de, you know, cleaning it up, really. And as I said, you can weave very, you know, f fabrics. That you know, maybe not a traditional tweed. It's still a tweed, so it's maybe the same structure, but it will. You can mix in alpaca. You can mix in cashmere, silk, cotton. You know, it's a very versatile uh, material to work with. Um, and you have the, you know, you can have different weights and different finishes and how you process it will give you different looks. Um, and it, so it, it, it's not just this kind of, you know, kind of, uh, what you know, one size fits all cloth. It's just, it, it's just tweed and it's tweed and it's just tweed. And it's just sort of, sort of heavy, crunchy sort of thing. Uh, it's, as I said, it can be as light as cotton and diaphanous and you can do lovely loose weaves. You can do crazy stuff with it. I think Linton Tweeds in to Preston, up around, up around there, Carlisle, whatever. They do all the stuff for Chanel, don't they? And it's, it's really it's pretty far out stuff. So it's totally fits with high fashion and it's, we are going to be looking at, you know, someone like Joseph is going to come in with completely fresh eyes and go, well, we can, you know, and he really has said, well, why don't we do this? And I was like, well, yes. Why don't we do that? Yes. You know, and he's got some amazing, amazing ideas. Um, I mean, how to sort of just lift this up a little bit uh, and to, to make it more, as you say, uh, adaptable and more versatile and more uh, sort of desirable for people to, to make streetwear. Uh, and some people, I think, really are. You sort of see, sort of, you know, like, um, yeah, I've seen loads of stuff made from tweed that are sort of b-boy, b-boy fashion, showing my age, streetwear, um, which would sort of almost be like this, in the style of the car hardy type stuff. Um, but now it's made from tweed, um, things like that. But it really has a place in very, very high-end fashion because, again, it is seen as a high-value quality uh cloth a quality textile and people will will always go for that kind of quality i believe and your second plan is to make denim yes just on a editable note here you're lagging slightly nick oh so it's your yeah so the mouth moves and then then the words come in oh just, just so you know there. Um, is that happening now as well? I don't know. Maybe it's my connection. Anyway. I don't know, that's better. I, I, I just need to be able to hear you, really. Yeah. So, yeah, let's go back to that question. Um, do you want to ask that again, then? 
So, once you've got the tweed underway, your plan is to go old school denim. Yeah, we are adherents of the selv. We like a bit of selvage. Um, I mean, personally, that just goes back to my uh, Adam Leslie days in Larne when there was just shelves of industrial denim. And I love the smell of it, but it's brand new. That sort of starchy feel as well. Um, uh, and I think just looking again in the UK, there's a resurgence of jeans making. So you've got um, there's three I can think of. Is it Black Horse Road? Black Horse Lane, uh, yeah. There's Hyatt, Black Horse Lane up in Walthamstow, uh, Hyatt up in West Wales, and now I've found a, um, Belfast, actually, the Belfast Denim Company, um, who are making some very nice jeans, and it'd be nice to be able to. And obviously, Hebtroco are, are pretty uh, pretty on it as well. They make great stuff as well. So there's lots of people out there who, I don't know, we'd like to, we'd like to be sort of in a position to say, well, if you want stuff, we can bang it out here. How much do you want? You know? Um, that's a whole new world though. So, I mean, I don't know what that entails, to be honest. It's, it's a very much on the wants list, whether that is practical in the short term, I do not know. Are the Hattersley looms, uh, any good for denim, do you think? They will be. Okay. <laughs> they will be. I would say, yeah, I'm sure you can, I'm sure you can weave, weave on those. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you can. Interesting thought. I don't know if you've listened to the episode with um, oh, the Canadian guy who is weaving British denim and the immense journey it took for him to, to get going. Uh, it's uh, I'm just going to pause for a brief moment and search it up because it's so yeah, go ahead. embarrassing yeah, yeah. for me to not remember his name when I mention him. I wonder who that is. It's a great story, though. I'll, I'll I'll look that up. It's on you. It's on the podcast, is it, or is it on the YouTube? It's on the podcast. Um, let me just uh, check that. Whereabouts is he? I think he's in London, but I'm not sure where his weaving is now. Chris Hewitt, Hewitt Denning Mills. Yeah, so I'll just uh, feed that in. Oh, Hewitt. Okay, so that's. H-U-I-T, is that it? Just let me... Uh, go. I, I don't know if you listened to the episode with Chris Hewitt, who does uh, Hewitt Denim Mills. That's H-E-W-I-T-T. Uh, Canadian guy, started out a vintage dealer in London, spent years and years and years, the most arduous journey ever to, to weave denim in the UK. Fantastic story, but I think he is actually up and running now and producing, he has at least produced some various... Um, it is yeah. interesting, though, he, because he mean, may not all, be... these, all these things need different mills and different processes. And, I mean, every step of his way, he was meeting problems that needed to be solved. The UK textile industry, yeah. once great, has been so dismantled that there's so little left. Yes, that's the thing. I mean, we, we, we do want to become like a sort of a grown-up factory, as it were. I mean, that's... I think that's that's the ultimate aim, if that's possible. You know, it's a beautiful dream. I mean, it may be we stay at the level of just having several looms and going, oh, well, we've got a client base, blah, 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 and that's okay. But it would be nice to kind of 
be one of hopefully many, many uh, set up startups that, that can actually start to to really reinvigorate uh, wool production itself in the UK as well as textiles. Um, and I says, I mean, the, I think there's enough space out there for for more more suppliers. There is, I mean, I mean, it's not just you're not just supplying the UK. You want to be supplying globally. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the B word hasn't really helped, I have to say. Um, and it was a massive impact when that came in, Brexit. We lost 18% of uh, overall trade, uh, 100% of overseas trade, because I think everyone's... I actually emailed people in America, for example, who just stopped buying. I was like, what's going on? I went, oh, man, Brexit. I mean, there's going to be more taxes, right? I went, no, it doesn't affect you at all, actually. We're like... Anyway, they just disappeared. But all the European customers, um, that was gone overnight. Overnight, I think we, I think two orders kind of dribbled out after Brexit, and then the nightmare was they had to pay. For, uh, they had, they had couriers charging them extra. There, they had all sorts of. Uh, they had uh, import duties, even when they weren't supposed to, because everything's one hundred percent UK origin, and there was just massive confusion, and that's. Well, that's one of the reasons um, that we're kind of swiveling around just to weaving was just um, making hats and and and, and uh, was becoming slightly problematic. Um, I didn't feel I had enough degree of control. Uh, I thought, well, if it's just if I'm just weaving, then I've got total control, and if it fucks up, that's my it's my it's my problem. You know what I mean? Um, Working with manufacturers in Britain isn't necessarily the uh, the dream world that we're all led to believe. I mean, there, there are, can be problems. Some are fantastic. Some can be problematical. And some don't like to fix problems when they've caused them. Um, and especially as a small operator, you were very much, you know, uh, viewed as, well, you should be honored to be working with us. I was like, sorry, I'm paying you. <laughs> um and that sort of stuck in my craw slightly, and I just thought, mm, I think I could do this better again if if we were doing it here. So I think hats will come back, uh, just as a side point in the future, uh, because I think if we can get, we know people around here are very talented um, makers and sewers, and I think if we can get them on board at some point, you might see the resurgence of uh, Sussex Sweet Hats even better than before. But in the meantime, we want to concentrate on the weaving because we think there's a, a much there's a much bigger market for, for, for cloths, textiles, for definite. Hats are pretty niche, you know, even still, even after Peaky Blinders, as everyone says, you must have done very well out of Peaky Blinders. And you go, well... Yeah, but there's quite a lot of us out there doing, you know, doing okay out of Peaky, Peaky Blinders. But some are doing better than others because they have the marketing budgets to to get themselves out in front of people. Whereas it was just little old me for a long time, kind of going, "How the hell does this work?" Oh, it's me and Instagram, and that's really about it. Um, because things like, and this is an interesting point for small, um, small enterprises you need you do need a massive marketing budget i think so and if you don't have that you're going to struggle uh, you know you're going to you're going to find it hard to get your get on that front page and to get those uh you know really drive those numbers through your door um and when you do spend a bit of money you you see that very quickly but if you don't have the readies at any given point and you can't afford to do it and you're trying to sort of create it organically yourself I think well, I think that ship has sailed uh, a long time ago. But um, 
there are a few things you can sort of try to get yourself out there to get more engagement. Sticking your face on Instagram is, seems to work. Um, we're now going to have to probably expand onto TikTok, much against my wishes. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just a little side point about being a very small business or being a one-man band, one-person outfit. Um, it's, it is very difficult. But if you can last four years, they, they reckon you're probably going to make it. So here we are 10 years later. I'm always impressed by small brands managing to do all that social media, all the promotion, all the extra stuff, and still find time to do what they were actually setting out to do, i.e. making stuff. There's just so much extra things that have to be done. Yeah, and I was also doing this um, to go, so just talk about the, the, the hats. Uh, I was working as a film editor as well. Um, pretty much solidly, really, since about, I mean, it it's, can be feast or famine in the freelance world, but um, when it's, you know, when it's feast time, you're just, you are literally owned by a production and uh, you're then trying to cram stuff into evenings and weekends. So you might have to go and do shows and markets and so on and so forth. And you suddenly you realize you're 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 kind of working all the hours that God sends, quite literally. Um, and it is it is tough. And you so that again, this is where I sort of thought I've got to get out of the sort of day job, as it were, and into my dream job. There's got to be a way. I've got to step off at some point because you really can't do it well if you're trying to spread yourself very thinly. Thankfully, now with the whole sort of downturn. Um, well, some people won't be saying thankfully, but um, with the uh, the strikes in America, the actors and writers writer strikes, the post COVID sort of catch up glut uh, finishing last year, and now the uh, cost of living crisis impacting advertising revenues. Um, the I haven't worked since September in TV, and I've decided, well, that's that. I spoke to my agent; they said I have never seen it so quiet. Um, I know people who are working, but just, and they're just literally taking stuff on whatever, anything, you know, one or two days here and there to keep, keep things going. I was looking for a way out, and I think it, it, it finally found me. So I've just gone, well, you know what? This is the time to step off now. So here we are. And so now I'm able to concentrate on this. And um, there are three of us now. So there's like my very good friend, Ali, is very amazingly supportive. And what she doesn't know isn't worth knowing, as I mentioned before. And I've got Joseph as well, who's just a hell of a talent. Um, and I sort of feel slightly like a, an innocent abroad in all this because we've, you know, this was never really sort of um, my plan to, 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 to be a weaver. But here I am. So we just have to kind of make the best of it and get on with it. I mean, I have no formal training, really. People have had a good friend, Natasha, who came along. I find her, I think, on Instagram. And I said, how oh, are you a weaver in Sussex? I've got a loom. And this is some old loom we got years and years ago rickety old counter march floor loom and uh, she came around and says well this goes there that goes there and i just sort of stood back and went right okay to put that there you put that there right and then she showed me how to warp it up and then i was like fucking hell this is mental and she got it working she she basically taught me how to weave really and i said can i have a go <laughs> and that's how it started and I thought, oh, that's all right. That's 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 usable stuff. Then I did a couple of courses in my local college, and that's really the extent of my knowledge. I mean, I don't know what half the stuff's called. I just kind of get on with it and do it. Because, again, it's that just do it, punk rock, get on with it. 
kind of ethic, and it does work. If you have an, an aptitude for something, you'll soon realize, yeah, you can do it. You don't need to know all the terminology, really. I'm quite happy with that. So, yeah, so it's very much now this is going to be the main thing. Thank God. That kind of sums it up quite neatly, I think. Now, is there anything we haven't talked about that you wanted to bring up? Um, God knows. What did I send you? I sent you a list of crazy stuff, didn't I? What did I, I send think, you? Yeah, apart from uh, ADHD, we have ADHD. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, the, the point. Okay, so I've recently been diagnosed as what late, <laughs> late onset, no late, um, late diagnosis ADHD through my son. Um, because I've always been a bit of a sort of a, a odd, eccentric, quirky. Um, person hard to work out a bit odd um and so my son was diagnosed and, I, and kathy just went ah that's you now we know now we know but the point i was going to make about that is when you find something that you're really really into you give it your 100 percent, and you know there's not many things that i am truly passionate about but this is now one of them and I just can't get enough of it. I'm absolutely loving this. I'm in this shed covered in crap every day, and I fucking love it. It's amazing. Um, And that's what's going to get me through this, because I can't stop being in here, and I can't stop fixing stuff up. And so it's not one of the – because the point is people with ADHD have have, – it's like lots of parallel lines shooting off all at once, lots and lots of great ideas, but the, the lines never seem to converge. With something you love, then there's one or two lines and they do converge and they do meet, they do meet, there is a meeting point and it leads to completion, um, thankfully. So um, yeah, that's, and you just, you just give it a, you know, a hundred percent and you can't not do it. And you get, you when you, when you get into something, you do everything about it. So whatever the topic is, you'll read all the books, you'll devour all the information, you'll get stuck in practically. And usually people make a success of things. I'm very good at doing whatever it is they love. People with ADHD are usually, usually pretty good at uh, carrying it through because they want to be there. So I take it you're not missing the commuting. Realistically speaking, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I am not. No. So you found these looms in Stornoway. Do you know anything about the specific history of, of them? Yeah. So when we find the looms, we knew nothing, obviously. And through dealing with the, um, the chap that was selling them, um, after we got them back, I uh, thought, well, obviously it's his um, wife's brother. They must have, you know, some some something, photographs and even, and even his oral history. So I just rang him up, and um, and he's a lovely chap. I mean, he actually rang as we were dri- driving down from Scotland to see if we were okay. Um, so we, um, I just asked the questions. So yeah, you're, you know. What do you know about them? You know, how old are they? How long was he? U- you know, how how long was he using them? And da, da 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 da, and just tell me what you can. And on that note, I've just sorry, I've just got it written down. So there's probably some more info. Oh God, where have I put that? Here it is. Again, this is my 
<laughs> edit this out, but this is my fucking idiot brain at work again. Um, he, uh, the guy, so she, um, sorry, I'll just restart that. So we find out that um, the chap that um, I had them was called John Murdo McKeever. He was a very tall man, which seems to be a trait because the other loom that we've got, which came from Donegal, uh, from up in Ballyliffin, the guy that had that, uh, Devlin, the guy Devlin, um, George Devlin. Um, he was very tall as well because the uh, the seat that came with it, I mean, we literally couldn't, I mean, my backside doesn't even reach the where the seat is. Um, so, unfortunately, that hasn't been passed down to me. So, there you go. Uh, John Murdoch McKeever, and they've, he was born in 1936. He did his national service in 55 or 56, started it. And he received the looms in 1954. But I don't think they were new because they're Mark 1s. And I think by 54, Hattersley were on the Mark 2s, which I believe, which are green. So they were probably secondhand because he's got two. So, he's you know, he's bought two of them. And if he's bought two of them and a six shaft pern minder, that would probably be quite a bit of money. So it's quite likely that they were second hand. So maybe they date from maybe twenty years before. We did find some markings on on um, some of the ceramics on the tensioners on the pern winder that say twenty three slash one, um, which is sort of shorthand for sometimes you know January nineteen, uh, yeah January twenty three maybe. Could just be a part number, but I mean, it's, it's quite a common thing. You see on the old, old bits of stationery and stuff, you can sort of see things like that. Um, and he has, so yeah, he died four years ago and he they haven't been used for more or less 30 years. So they've been sitting in there idle for a long, long time. And on there was his final, a uh, final, a final bit of his, his last warp, which is a lovely petrol blue herringbone. With the sort of like almost Donegal type flex you get common to Harris as well through it. Lovely, lovely piece of stuff. So I cut a bit off the, the clean bit and said, would you like that? And he said, absolutely. So I've sent that up to them. And I said, well, I'll send you some photographs. I was like, you beauty. Amazing. So we got some lovely photographs. You can actually see them on our, on our, on our Instagram. Um, sadly, not of him using the looms. It's just of him. But he is outside the shed leaning on the doorway. Uh, the very doorway that these um, these looms came out through. So I think that's a lovely thing to have that connection and to sort of, you know, put a face to the name, as it were, you know. Um, and we also have the sort of similar information with the Donegal loom because some of the family saw it on Facebook and, you know, oh, my, that's my, uh, I think that's someone's, fa my father or my uncle, and you know. And then we got some photographs that way. We got lots and lots of history. Uh, the Donegal loom was, uh, came from a little factory set up, uh, a wee place called Ballyliffin, north of Buncrana, um, outside Derry. And um, a local priest set it up, I think it was the 60s. And he got a few of these these looms, which are very common to Donegal. I think they call them Donegal blanket looms, but, you know, obviously for weaving, tweed. And there's a few people still using them over there. Eddie Doherty in Ardra is um, uh, a great weaver. There's Studio Donegal, uh, whose founder sadly passed away last week. Um, 
run out, run out in Kilcar uh, by a guy called Tristan. Uh, and they have quite a few of those going out there. And they, I mean, they can, you should see these guys in operation. It's something to behold. I mean, I'm pretty slow on it, but these guys are flying. <laughs> like, they're really flying on them. Um, and they produce beautiful stuff. So we got a lot of information from, from Donegal about this. Um, and people were very fulsome in their, in their um, giving of information. And I'll probably do a little blog post um on my website at some point about that with, with we've got pictures of the shed it was in if you like corrugated iron it's amazing it was an old british army drill hall or something about you know maybe first world war era maybe before um and this was kind of like a unemployment relief scheme and the the local priest parish priest started and it was running up until i think about the 1980s and then i believe they were just kind of sitting in there and it was eddie doherty who um I think rescued a few of them out there. So uh, that's how I came by it, just by knowing Eddie and buying, you know, buying Tweed off him 20 odd years ago and chatting away to him. And he's um, he's also an Antrim man. He's also, well, he, like me, he's born in Belfast, but he's very much a Donegal man, but he was born in Belfast, he told me. And he's still weaving in his 80s. And I think, well, that's what I'm going to aim for. And he says, you know, you're never done learning. He says, you're always learning, learning something. Um, he says, "There's always you're always trying to refine and hone your skills. You're, you know, you you never think you're good enough, so you keep chasing it." And uh, he says, "I love it." He says, "I'll never retire." <laughs> I thought, "Well, that's probably what's going to happen to me. I hope so. Hope so." So that's a little bit of history about the looms there. Um, I suppose there's also the aspects of exercise, uh, which makes me wonder: the guy up in Stornoway with two looms was it a family business? Who was he weaving with? He would have been, uh, you know, sort of under contract, I think, for, you know, to um, Harris Tweed Authority or Association, whatever they're called. Authority <laughs> since, these authority, days, since, since 93. Since 93, there you go, because I've probably got old clothes with Association or whatever on it. Um, and my mind is still somewhere in the 1950s most of the time anyway, so a bit of a lag going on there and uh he would have been waving for the for hta then um because yeah that's that's just would have been what it what it was and he obviously would have been um he must have he, he had a croft so he'd probably been weaving part-time crofting part-time I was, just, I was just thinking that with two looms and them being foot powered he couldn't be doing both of them at the same time so he must have had someone else helping out maybe he uh, the, uh, that hasn't been mentioned but I mean, again, it's like you say, you know, you've got three cars, but one arse, but you can just rotate around them, you know, so you can, um, I mean, the plan here is, you know, if I'm here on my own, or if Joseph's here, I mean, we can get two going, and we can just do, so you could do X amount on one loom, toodle across to the next one, do X amount on that, and then across to Donegal, X amount on that, and just, quick, you know, and just kind of work around them. You know, uh, you can have three different warps on the go. So it gives you a lot of flexibility. So I'm thinking that's possibly what he was doing. So he would, you know, maybe do half a day on one loom and half a day on the other one, you know, and have, and then he's got, instead of just, you know, one day, one full day on, on just one loom doing just one tweet. So maybe he's kind of, you know, working smart there and he's thinking, well, I can actually double my output by just dividing my time a wee bit um, or maybe spending a bit longer or maybe work, work, working for a weekend. So maybe he's, you know, buying out twice the amount of tweet of other guys and is maybe making more money that way. I don't know. I guess you could uh, actually put motors on yours to 
have them running on their own. Oh. Um, it wouldn't be a requirement for you to, that it has yep. to be made by human power. No, you can, you can, yeah, you can, you can do that. Indeed. Some people put, um, take the pedals off completely and then just get a, get a little sprocket welded onto the, the bottom sort of camshaft and then they sit and pedal. That's one thing I've seen people doing. You can stick a wee motor on there. Yep. And then just press go and away it goes. You have to keep a very close eye on it, obviously, because I think as after 60 picks, you're, the perns run out, I think, according to the, the Bible, as it's now known, the uh, Harris Tweed uh, instruction book they sent me down um, about all these looms, everything about the looms and the pern winders. It's been a godsend. Uh, thank you, HTA. And if anyone does have a Hattersley and is kind of scratching their head, if you get in touch with the Harris Tweed boys and girls, they will, um, they will for 15 quid, donation to their educational trust, they'll send you information. Um, so that's great. That's really good. Thank you very much. Um, and um, yeah, you you can you can do. They're they're pretty adaptable, I would say. So you've got three three uh, three power inputs if you want it. Um, and I'll just keep them pedal powered. Yes, it is a very physical um, pursuit. Uh, obviously, with Hattersley's pure Hattersley's, you're pedaling, pedaling, pedaling. So I mean. I've never used a Hattersley yet, so we'll see what that's like in comparison to the Donegal loom, which is is pretty physical. You know, you do one thing weavers will say is like you can come into a cold shed, but you don't always need you don't always need uh, heating because within about five minutes you're you're up to temperature, as it were. You know, um, you're certainly on the boil and. It's in, and it's hard as well, physically quite hard. The Donegal loom, it's like drumming. You're you're coordinating hands and feet and eyes and rhythm. And um, it's, some people might find that tricky. I do play the drums, so it's a bit easier. But, um, and it's very similar, very similar to, and it's quite musical because, you know, the, 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 you know, we get a rhythm going, you kind of get locked into a bit of a groove. And it kind of lulls you in, and it actually becomes quite therapeutic. But it's, um, but it is very therapeutic and very relaxing. I absolutely adore it. You get, you do get lost in it, and everything just melts away, and you're just creating this beautiful stuff right in front of your very eyes with your hands and your feet and your eyes. It's incredible, and um, of course, the smell is wonderful as well. And um, but it's hard. It's very hard. Donegal looms are hard, and one thing that Joseph said was, he says, you know, you you, you could do so much of this in a day. But he says he, he, it does after a day. You you you, see, you really feel it in your arms, and you are quite tired. So, and he said, if you get these hatchetsleys, which thankfully we now have, he says that's going to be a game changer because we're not going to be as tired, you know, and, and we'll be able to be we'll we'll, we'll we'll produce more and more consistently, you know, as opposed to having to stop for a wee cup of tea, um, which happens a lot in here. And so that's an interesting point. It is it's hard, hard, um, physically hard. But as we said about Eddie Doherty in his 80s, also probably very good for you, you know, because you're getting a bit of a cardiovascular workout. Um, and that man doesn't look 80 or he looks sick, late 60s. Um, which he was very happy to hear. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, we were talking before we started the recording and you mentioned that you saw some parallels between the act of weaving and the act of storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's probably a tired old trope, this one. But, I mean, it's um, you do 
so coming from um, editing, you know, an editing background, it's all about the timeline. Um, although it used to be very linear, the old fashioned sort of editing was kind of you do your paper edit and then you'd sort of, you know, it's like putting a train together and like ding, 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 ding. Um, of course, now with non-linear editing, digital editing that's come in, you can start at the back, go to the middle, you know, it all stays in place and then fill in the gaps as, as it were. And then you obviously can't, you can maybe do that with, um, uh, do that with like uh, carpet weaving, hand weaving carpets on a frame or something. You could probably do something a bit like that. I don't know. I've never done it. But um, you can certainly, you know, it's not just left to right across across the warp, you can sort of do bits in the middle and bits at the side and then fill in between. Um, but with weaving, it is very linear. So it is, it's, it's quite an old scale, it's, you know, old skills. It's linear, uh, but you are, you can change whatever you want going across. So you are kind of like telling, you know, it tells its own story about, about the cloth. You're kind of changing the picture as it goes through. Um, and it's there's a start there's a start a middle and an end I guess, um, but yeah it's it, it's it just struck me a little bit a little bit uh, similar uh, to old school the old school editing we used to do about thirty odd years ago on film and stuff where it is like one shot next shot next shot next shot, um, and I quite like that and again there's a musical kind of connection like I said the rhythm going on especially with with where you've got foot. Um, foot pedals for the shafts as well as like like flying the shuttle across by hand as well and you're you know pushing the beater back and forth moving the sleigh back and forth uh you everything's going you know what i mean it is you know it is very very musical in that in that respect as well and i guess also you find inspiration for colors etc from where you are i mean it's often Harris Tweed make a big point of comparing their tweeds to uh, sort of photos, nature photos from the Hebrides, where the colours are picked up in the tweed and so forth. Is that something you would be looking at? Absolutely. I mean, I think I've mentioned uh, before that uh, we use a lot, we use blue. And all the warps we've done so far, we've the background is blue, the, the, the base is blue, or a mix of blues. Um, and that's because of the, the lovely, intense skies you get down here in Sussex, uh, especially down near the coast. It's just like sort of indigo skies in a way sometimes. It's like breathtakingly deep, deep blues. Um, and that, that reacts very, very well with like rusty kind of stuff uh you know so you think uh, ashdown forest where we where we're just we're right on the edge of ashdown forest which is a stunning stunning uh part of england like um old old heathland and you get the again with the it's there's that kind of dun color sort of there all the time it's and it reminds me a little bit of ireland as well so it's what we're trying to do is kind of bring in the irish influence and the english together to make something a little bit, maybe a little bit different. And there's just an endless range of colors up there and you're constantly walking around and, and again, taking photographs going that with that, with that, with that, with that would look amazing. And you just go, can we just take that bush and make it into tweed? You know, um, 
there's and there's lots of gorse bushes or whin bushes as we would call them with those lovely yellow flowers and that deep 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 kind of a brunswick green and stuff um so there's a whole mine of of inspiration up there that you can just go around you can even just go up with a you know some of the you know, kind of yarn books you get sent out and just with a little stick and just take a bit of this and take a bit of that and match it all up to what what you're saying and go right make that um and that's very much coming down the pipe um and again that starts you know, speaks to the whole sort of story thing because you know you can it, the inspiration is a story in itself and then you're you know kind of mixing us into the physical cloth and um and it's lovely to do that and it's really really i'm not gonna say it's a fucking privilege because that's just fucking shit but it, <laughs> but you know it's it's how lucky we are to be able to do something like that that's the the, the way i see it it's like you lucky bastard <laughs> swearing again sorry nick <laughs> no i could i could see i mean i i often catch myself thinking that wow it would be nice to have a loom and then well, a few seconds later i start seeing the reality of it and realize that i like the idea of it but i don't think i could put in the hours at all yeah well i said i think i said uh previously that you know here we are i look around and i've 10 years in of you know slightly um curious start trying to make, make well did make some clothing and then thought this is um this is too much too too much and then the hats came in and i thought god i'll never be able to do that but we'll have a go and about four years into that of like intense scurrying around and selling hats i was like oh my god i've done it i actually that, that happened shit um and on it went um i was going well it was going great guns until covid and brexit and all the cost of living crisis came in and then it's just you know i thought ooh shit and it was it was really starting to take off i ha hate to say it but um and then it just um yeah people just stopped spending money i was like okay then someone would say well then what makes you think you're going to make money out of weaving as well there's a bigger market for that so um but and, and then leading on to the weaving you know when kathy said oh why don't you you know you can't be you can't make sure of your supplies so why don't you get a little loom and just you know weave things you you need and the, the things you want yourself and i nearly fell off my chair laughing and again here we are look we've we were doing it and i kind of look around and just go how the hell did i get here i don't know um but we are and then you know 10 years from now god knows where we'll be but i i fully intend to be around for a long time doing this forever maybe yeah i'm just sort of curious uh, um do you sense that there is a, a lack of tweed in the industry that there is a, a definite gap to be filled that the market is gasping for more as it were yeah i i believe so i, I mean like we said earlier pure pure tweed in the traditional sense is probably i don't know I, i'm not sure if like um i don't know uh christopher kane or oswald Boateng or stella mccartney is just going to go yeah let's get a real big heavy tweed and make a massive you know lovely dress out of it they might do and, and then that's then that is a massive opportunity but i think woolen cloth um or you know combined with I don't know, mercerized cotton or silks and cashmeres and alpacas and wool blends, finer stuff, very intricate stuff 
interesting, unusual stuff. That's where I think you're going to see people turning to because they are, as I said, they are, they are turning away from man-made fabrics because they are just nasty. Um, and if you're a high-end fashion brand pushing the whole sort of sustainability angle, you can't get better than wool. Um and wool will have to kind of respond to that and speak to that and adapt to that um, because it just will. So get on with it and do it. And I think if people can out there can do that, then there's a, there's a very healthy market just waiting to be tapped into, to be quite honest with you. Let's, uh, let's hope so. Fingers crossed. Mm. Now, you did mention while we were chatting before the recording that you had a family history in the field of weaving historically speaking what's that about well this wasn't known until quite recently um was just kind of fittering about on ancestry um, and stuff and chatting to my mum who is she spells her, her, her name spelled the French way. I says, why is that? She says, well, um, it comes from the Apsley branch of the family, which used to be Le Apsley, who came from Normandy, uh, were Huguenots. And there's only three families in the whole Ar Ar island of Ireland with, with that name, either Apsley, Lapsley, or Le Apsley. And um, they were French Huguenots, and they were over, possibly involved in lace making and linen weaving probably they were around about some of them were in Armagh which I think was a uh, there was like that sort of um mid-ulstery bit was there's still is some weaving and flax weaving is also resurgent but sort of you know north down north sort of Armagh out towards Portadown uh area there was weaving and even in my hometown Larn there was uh linen weaving quite quite and bleach and dye works and stuff so there's a, there's a history all across northern ireland of weaving anyway um largely gone there are still some people doing it so i thought my god this is what a what a what a coincidence what a nice that's a that's that's something maybe maybe it's in the blood i don't know but um probably not but it's a nice it's a nice story and but i i haven't been able to find out a lot more about them. They were the Apsies and Larn, and I don't know if there's any left now. I'm not sure, but they were my mother's cousins. So, and and she's uh, Lucy with an I E. So she's Lucy. Um, yeah, we'll see. I, I that's worthy of more inspection. But how how nice to think that there would be some kind of connection there, and you could sort of, you know, join the dots and complete the circle and that, and then it's you know, come all the way back round again. That would be. That would be really, 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 really special to me if that if that was the case. So I, I'm I'm willing that to be true. <laughs> Maybe an opportunity to make some tweed lace or lacy tweed. Uh, <laughs> probably a special interest market for that. It's like, it sounds like trying to weave spaghetti or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't I don't know. But of course, the the Irish linen industry is no more, but is slowly coming back. Um, I don't know whether you you follow the fibre shed. Um, movement at all because they're also very much in the same sort of idea space as you are of bringing stuff back and i know in sweden they've been bringing back the whole sort of cycle of of wool because for decades now there hasn't been an opportunity of washing scouring the wool in sweden so it had to be carted off to europe somewhere but now they've brought that back and it's sort of 
gradually happening again. Might be a sort of a thing to taper into. Yeah, it's. Um, I think linen is. I I, I knew a linen weaver. Um, uh, what's her name? Roisin, I think she's at the Ulster Folk and Transport Museum. She would go and do demonstration weaving there on a very, you know, on a sort of a. I think it was like a, it was a very very complicated multi-shafted kind of dobby loom, uh, all entirely hand and foot powered, and she says it is fiendish to weave linen like this is that it is really actually quite a skill it's not as forgiving as as using wool or even cotton um i think it's quite fragile i think you really have to be really know you know really have know your onions on that one um it's not impossible for us to even look at that but i mean we're not probably going to to be quite honest because i think there are people out there who do it do it well and it's and even in Northern Ireland, there's people doing it. I think Ferguson's, I mean, if you, you can see me now, on my head is the rather stylish and amazing Aubrey cap. There's a story about that in itself. That's why it's called Aubrey. Um, and this is made from Northern Irish linen that was woven in Northern Ireland and completely processed in Northern Ireland. Uh, the flax in Irish linen apparently hasn't been um, Irish flax for a very, very, very long time. It was all, I think it all comes from Belgium. Has that for like uh, Lithuania, I think. Is that right? It's Eastern European or Belgian. Yeah, I think. yeah. That's, that's been the case for a long time. Uh, but it is resurgent. There's a couple Ulster Weavers, um, Ferguson's, and I think there's, oh, who the hell is Spence Bryson or something like that? I think out in, there's not many left. There's not many. There might actually be, there are some companies that just seem to operate below the radar, you know? Um, they're very just going about their business quite quietly um, and then you're very surprised when you find them but there's a few still left in Northern Ireland but it used I mean there used to be like probably you know, tens of thousands of flax looms in, in Belfast alone I mean it was I think it was at one point the the world capital for flax and linen um, and cottons at one point you know to sort of rival Manchester on cottons at least Um I used to see all the mills, most of them gone now. And God knows what happened to that equipment. I would dare say it just went to the scrap heap. Um, but it's coming back. There's a, a company people should check out. I think they're called Malin, Malin Linens, I think, who are now growing. Well, there you go. He, them, they are, uh, is that a, team, a husband and wife team or something? There's a couple of people involved in that whole family thing. And they're growing flex. It's not flax, flex. <laughs> F-L-E-X, flex. <laughs> Although, yeah, they were, they were planting it. I saw them on Instagram planting stuff with their, you know, with their seed riddle, seed drill. Um, and that's their intention to grow and, and process, again, to sort of, you know, from field to fabric, which is a great, great idea. And that gives me a lot of um, hope for the future. The people are just starting like this. And as I said earlier, when we meet problems, they'll just go around them or over them or under them or, you know, see you later um until people take notice and then start to you know get behind you um, there's only you just have to lead by doing don't you really and i think that's what they're doing and i'm hoping that that's a, a, a again pardon the pun a growth opportunity for northern ireland to um to really kind of uh, make that happen a bit harder they're still sort of in the eu area really so i mean there's no sort of trade borders with the EU. So Northern Ireland's in a very privileged position right now. It can actually trade uh, 
tariff free with the EU. No, no nonsense. I know some people don't like that, but you know, at the end of the day, you can't eat a flag, people. You know, of whatever type it is. Um, and I think there is sort of positive growth going over there uh, in the in, in the economy. Um, you talk to anyone from Northern Ireland, they say nonsense, but the figures I think um, are pretty good. Uh, so it's, that's heartening to see that uh, come back because people thought it was dead and gone and would never resurge. But linen is such a wonderful fabric. Uh, it's just the best thing for, for summertime, um, which is why we make hats out of it, because then we you can be a year-round operation. You don't sell much tweed in the summer, obviously. Um, and the, the linen caps we've we've done have been very, very popular. And I would just wish all these people the best of luck with their endeavours, because I think that they deserve to win through in the end. Absolutely, 100%. Now, you mentioned at the start, growing up in Northern Ireland, you were in contact with Bono, you too, etc. So, I gather you probably have some sort of juicy recollections from uh, the good times. Well, now what's to? <laughs> uh, well, that's a hell of a story, and it's a very long story. It's almost a podcast in itself, Nick. To be quite honest, long story short, as teenagers, we got to play with them at a secret gig, and so there was subsequent stories, and um, I'll try and give you the short version. Um, good friend of ours, his father worked, uh, Guy Jerry, sadly no longer with us. Um, he, um, his father worked for the BBC and um, I think in it, we were, you know, playing in bands badly, but 15, 16, 16, I think we were. Um, this would be about 1987. Uh, so I think the Joshua Tree had just come out and that was, as you know, that was the interstellar, spacecraft that took them, you know, stratospheric really, didn't it? Um, broke them in America and they became, they were the biggest rock and roll band in, in the world. Um, and um, we went to this gig in the, oh God, where was it? Balmoral Showgrounds. There was a little BBC studio there. And all Grey Whistle tests were filming. It was all very, very hush-hush, secret, secret. Um, we got in and we're right up the front and it was also in support was Sinead O'Connor. First, also sadly no longer with us. Sadly no longer with us. God love her. I mean, and it that was earth shatteringly, just mind blowing. We'd never seen or heard anything like this, and that was a real, a real, that was a real moment, and. Um, that was her first gig in, in Belfast, I believe. And um, so then U2 came on and, you know, says we're going to do lots of new songs off the off the album, which, in fact, I don't think it even was out. I think this was, yeah, it wasn't, hadn't come out. So this was like, we were the first people in the world to hear these songs uh, being played live um, with a song, I think it was an Exit, being a particular favourite in God's country they played. I think it's on YouTube somewhere. Anyway, in between songs, Bono's kind of go, oh, yeah, how's it going, you know, yeah, yeah, sort of thing. He's not quite as dub as that, but, you know, he's like sort of, all right, how's it going, you know, type, you know, he's, you know, because like, he, he was all about breaking down the barriers between the audience and the band and involving people and getting into the crowd and stuff. And um, he was just sort of uh, tuning his guitar and like just taking the piss out of himself. And then we started shouting uh, song titles out, like really obscure ones from like when they were like the hype and the feedback, 
you know, pre U2 kind of thing when they were really shit. <laughs> I remember like, shouting stuff like street mission, street mission, <laughs> concentration cramp. I mean, awful, awful songs and awful titles. And I mean, if you hear some very early U2, they were flipping lousy. Like, but, uh, and he just looked at us and cracked up and went, I can't fucking remember that. Why don't you come up and fucking play? So, what? Can you just repeat that? Why don't you come up and play those? Fuck. It was like someone had taken, I don't know, all the adrenaline ever produced in the history of humanity and poured it into our tiny little minds. I mean, we floated, I think, above Belfast immediately. And then, so we got, so we grabbed Jerry, who was our guitarist, and we started trying to push him over the barriers, go, fuck off, fuck off. I was like, what do you mean, fuck off? It's you two. Get over there. We sort of got his legs and dipped him over the barrier. And then the next thing I hear is, um, where's Fife? Where's the drummer? So he needs no fucking encouragement. He's over. And then, uh, as, <laughs> Mr. Paul Houston gesticulating to me to come across the barrier. And of course, I'm over like a fucking shot. And um, I was a bass player. So I, and I walked up to Adam and he's like, oh, hi, yeah, yeah, you, Jonathan, you the bass player. <laughs> Adam Clayton's handing me the fucking, oh my God, you know, handing me his, I think it's a Fender Jazz with a cutaway fretboard. And I goes, and he's like, there you go, have fun. I'm like, <laughs> um, I still don't know what we're going to do at this point, but we're on stage. And um, I thought, shit, I think I said to Bono, do you want to do Teenage Kicks? He goes, oh, no, I'm, I'm fucking off, you know, kind of thing. You have to find a singer. And I saw a guy who was in a band called Ghost of an American Airman, a guy called Dodge. He was in the audience. And I said, Dodge, Dodge, come up, come up. We'll, we'll do Teenage Kicks. Probably about the only song we could bloody well play. And um, I turned around and Fife has gone. The drummer has gone. Where, where's, where's the drummer? And of course, oh, fuck, he's left-handed. Fuck. So he's run down the corridor going, Larry, Larry, I'm left-handed. And Larry just goes, well, just do the best you can, you know. What, what, what do you want me to do? Change the fucking drunk head around. Literally, that's what he said. And then by the time Pearl Five got back, there's another guy. Because <laughs> Pono's gone. Oh, drummer's gone. Anyone play the drums? And just Larry Mullen alike got up. Um... And he's installed behind the kit, and Pearl Fife was like, fuck my life, bollocks. Fife then went, later went on to become a global superstar drummer, so I think that was probably what happened there. He went, I'm bloody well going to be famous, and he was. And um, he ended up drumming for a band called Therapy, who were absolutely sensational until he left. Sorry, guys, but that's the truth. And um, so then we launched into Teenage Kicks, and we thankfully had a good singer. He did a good job. But the drummer, however, had probably never heard of the undertones. So he just starts drumming some U2 song and trying to be Larry Mullen. So anyway, we just ignored him. We, we sort of played the song. And then at the side of the stage, who do we have? The Edge and Sinead O'Connor, wolf whistling at us. And later on, we, um, I mean, Christ almighty. Can you imagine that? That's like, you know, Meeting the Beatles back in the sixties, and I'm saying, you know, alright, la, you know, come on, you know, oh, that's not from Dublin, are they? Uh, <laughs> alright, la, do you want to come up and uh, he'll play some songs? And I'm like, you just cannot believe the effect that has on a teenage brain. It is insane, insanely lucky and insanely amazing. And they were just gracious and nice and kind. 
and it continues. We then were all like floated back home to Larne after that, and um, then we thought it might be on, it might be on telly, it might be on telly. The fucking BBC turned the cameras off. Can you believe that? <laughs> uh, Union rules, mate. It says no. Sorry, you've got to turn the cameras off. Sorry, no. It's like for fuck's sake. Now, of course, you'd film it. Um, there are photographs of it out there somewhere where my brother took. Um, God knows where they are. Um, and anyway, um, so we were on a high probably for weeks afterwards, and we thought it's bound to be in the music press. So we were like, you know, scarring the NME and Sounds Melody Maker. And it was Sounds who came through with the review of it. And there was a quote, we could not believe our eyes. And The Edge, and I quote, said, it was great when they played Teenage Kicks, wasn't it? (gasps) That's us. That's him. Connection. (laughs) Fuck. So, yeah. I mean, I think people went, I fuck off. Shut up. Bullshit. Full of shit. Shut up. You know what I mean? And then I went, no, look. And they went like, you bastards. You know what I mean? And anyway, so... They were then playing, that would have been sort of wintertime, 87, I suppose, early 87, March 87, something like that. They were then scheduled to play, uh, what's it called, the King's Hall Balmoral, uh, which was uh, 3,500 people. I mean, that's nothing for them, I think, even then, Um, on the Joshua Tree Tour. So, convinced of our, you know, imbued with invincibility of of the of the youth um five starts learning to drum uh, right-handed <laughs> um you know because uh, clearly we're going to get back on stage at the big gig and we rehearse the song back to front as it were convinced we're going to get up there and um we make a banner, which I found recently, saying REM Teenage Kicks. So we took it up, hung it over the, the balcony in this huge, huge venue. Um, Paul Hewson, a.k.a. Bonzo, he fucking spots it. It was the last time we were in Belfast. These lads, you know, these guys played uh, Teenage Kicks. We're going to get them on stage now, so come on down. <laughs> so, hello. I mean, can you imagine that? fuck away off we literally jumped down entire flights of stairs to meet the belfast bouncer the subspecies of the belfast bouncer sorry mate sorry mate sorry mate Ooh, sorry mate sorry mate a bit like you know the uh the skysers kind of thing all right but of course clock is ticking here the man has said a thing it has to happen it's not happening Shit, what does he do? So he just grabs someone from the audience, sticks a guitar on them, and they kind of go, get get off. Yay, everyone goes wild, and the moment is gone, and we are deflated. Then Paul McGuinness suddenly appears, and he goes, oh, boys, I'm so sorry. I'm really, 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 really sorry. Sorry. And he told the bouncer off, because I didn't know, do my job, do my job, mate. And it's like, have you got fucking ears and a brain that are connected? Hello? Do you see anyone else going, that's us, let us in? No, you don't. Twat. Anyway, so we sort of, I think the rest of the gig is just sort of like, oh, we could have done anything. And we were just like, oh. Uh, however, 
Turns out, and this is where I got a lot of respect for you two and, and, and a lot of time for them. So there's a couple of re things coming up here. Um, they came out looking for us after the gig. They went out the back to try and find us. I just thought, wow, that's fucking decency. Like, that's, that's decent as fuck. And we know this because they told us later. Paul McGuinness wrote us a letter and told us this. Because here's the, the, the horrible bit. Um, so there's three of us, Jerry, Fife and I, in this band. And um, I mean, this isn't relevant to this podcast at all. But um, I was over in England that summer uh, seeing family. And I was getting the train and the ferry back to Larn. And they were out in town at a gig in Belfast. And they thought, hey, let's go and surprise Johnny off the ferry. Um, but of course, you know, Northern Ireland in those days shut down about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And um, they hitchhiked to Larn. Um, they got so far, they got to Carrick Fergus. And one of those sliding door moments, had they just stopped and looked at their watches or, you know, whatever, or had to be in a chip shop open or something, they wouldn't have got into the stolen minibus. And long story short, these joyriders had nicked a minibus and I went, all right, lads, where he's gone? Oh, I'm going to Lauren. I hop in. So are we. Now, so are we now. We, you've just said that. Uh, came off the road uh, just before Lauren and a bad fucking band. Um, they were turning the lights off, da la 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 la. And the guys knew. I mean, Jerry and Fife knew this was going to end badly. And I was like, guys, seriously, slow down. There's a bad band coming up. Fuck up. Off the road they went. Three fuckers went through the windscreen, broken arm. Um, poor Jerry was um, tetraplegic afterwards. Five broken arm and leg. They were lucky to be even alive. Um, such is the folly of youth. youth eh? Fucking hell. Scumbags got away with it as well. No fucking, no, there's no, that's just something, there's something wrong with the affairs uh, of the world when that sort of shit happens. And that was just beyond, just beyond bad at what, 16 to go through all that shit. Um, yeah, and that was the end of that lovely story. However, there's, there's not a bright point, but it's a nice point. Um, we had fun going to, you know, to help uh, Jerry, you know, with trying to rebuild his life and we wrote to you too and this is how we found out you know so we came looking for you or you know really really sorry please accept the check for i won't say how much x amount and um i thought fucking decent no i, I won't hear a word against them sorry but they're they're fucking decent lads so there you go um yeah that's that's how that story ends not not well unfortunately but there you go. Okay, Jonathan. Thanks a lot for uh, for this. Uh, very much enjoyed it. And I think people should aware, be aware that a mile in a Land Rover is like two miles in a regular car. So the 780-mile trip up to Stornoway is much longer than even that sounds. Uh, yeah, yeah. I would say two is optimistic, maybe five. Uh, yeah. But Nick, thank you so much. It's been really, really lovely to speak to you. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, bye-bye for now. And that was all for this week's Gomology. Expect a fresh episode next week. Hit subscribe or follow to automatically download next week's episode as soon as it's published. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, I'd appreciate a review and a rating. 
I mean, if you can be bothered, if you listen on Spotify, you can leave a rating. Um, I do keep saying this and occasionally someone does leave a review, for which I'm eternally grateful. If you'd like to get in touch, my email is welldresseddad at gmail.com or just follow me on Instagram as welldresseddad. Again, links and details in the show notes, including a link to the Patreon details. And if you'd like to buy me a coffee, yeah, if, if you'd like to, you know, doesn't, don't have to. I don't gatekeep my episodes at all. Free for all. Okay, until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.